0: At first I was like my dream was to just open up a clinic in Compton to, to see my community there and that's still something that's still deep and close to my heart but I felt like when I got into Harvard Medical School it was the opportunity to really use the platform that I would gain here as a Black woman from Compton To really bring those challenges that I saw in my community here to the forefront and to make sure that I was bringing my community members and their struggles and their stories into every space that I I walked into. And I think that that's really how I started to to understand the power of my voice.
1: This is the Visible Voices Podcast. I'm Dr. Risa Lewis. Before we get started with today's episode, here's a message from Adela of the Podcast Brunch Club. Hey there, podcast listeners. Join us at Podcast Brunch Club. It's like book club, but for podcasts. Every month, we put together a thematic podcast playlist, and then chapters in over 70 cities across the world get together to discuss the list and swap podcast recommendations. Find out more at podcastbrunchclub.com. Hi, podcast audience. Welcome to today's episode. I am so excited to tell you about my two guests. Dr. Alistair Martin is faculty, at the MGH Center for Social Justice and Health Equity. He's an emergency physician at Massachusetts General Hospital, and he's quite an advocate. He has been the brain and the heart behind a few initiatives. You're going to hear more about them, but first let me just list them. These are a few of them. Get wavered, Vote ER, and Got Vax. Now, Alistair and I actually attended the same residency program in Boston, many, many different years apart. I got to know Alistair during the pandemic because all of my emergency medicine physician friends started wearing a lanyard around the neck. And attached to the lanyard was a laminated card. That laminated card had a QR code. And with that QR code, we were able to sign up colleagues and patients to vote. We were able to help patients get registered to vote. I'd never seen an initiative like this before. My second guest is student doctor, soon-to-be Dr. LaShraya or Lash Nolan. Lash is completing her second year of medical school at Harvard Med School, also in Boston. And she is cut from the same cloth as Alistair. She also is using her voice for advocacy and to make a difference. She's a Foster Scholar in Health Policy Advocacy and Media at the MGH Stokel Center for Primary Care Innovation. She's also a co-host for a podcast, the Clinical Problem Solvers Anti-Racism in Medicine podcast. Most recently, she founded We Got Us. We Got Us is a grassroots community empowerment project with the goal of bringing vaccine education and access to Black communities in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, I first got to know Lash via social media, specifically on Twitter. In 2019, she became the first black woman to be elected class president of the Harvard Medical School. I felt very lucky to share space and time with these two guests. You should follow them and follow their paths because they are already making a difference in this world. They're changing the face of healthcare. Let's get to the conversation where, when we begin, Lash is telling us about her voice and when she started using and realizing her voice.
0: So I would say every since I was a little girl, I was always the outspoken kid. Um, I have been the class president of my class since the fifth grade. So I was always like, yeah, you know, we need to repaint the lines on the basketball courts. Like that was my idea of advocacy. And I think I just always had this natural draw to to, to standing up against injustice in the, in the more small forms that I saw as a child, but then also just as I got older and went through undergrad and learned about social injustice as it presents um, as public health crises and and things of that sort, I said, okay, this is something that I really want to dedicate my life and my time to. And I think when I got into Harvard Medical School, it was a game changer for me because I had to make the decision, am I going to stay home for medical school? At first, I was like, my dream was to just open up a clinic in Compton, to, to see my community there. And that's still something that's still deep and close to my heart. But I felt like when I got into Harvard Medical School, it was the opportunity to really use the platform that I would gain here as a Black woman from Compton to really bring those challenges that I saw in my community here to the forefront and to make sure that I was bringing my community members and their struggles and their stories into every space that I, that I walked into. And I think that that's really how I started to to understand the power of my voice. And I think that Twitter really allowed me to hone that because I was able to express the ways that I was seeing injustice play out through my medical education. And, and that really propelled me forward and wanting to do the work to address those things that I was experiencing. Alistair, you use your voice. Tell us about that.
2: It's a great question, Risa. I think, you know, I, I struggled with this uh, a lot. Um, early on, which is this question of, you know, is my voice even worth listening to? You know? Um, do I do I have um anything to offer or to provide? And I think, you know, as as a sort of first year and second year at Harvard Medical School, you know, over a decade ago, I think I, I struggled with imposter syndrome, you know, and this um question of, you know, uh Am I worthy of this platform? You know, and i tell you what, you know, I went through medical school and it was in third year where I really started to, to see the, just the gap in between what we say we value in our healthcare system and what we say is important and our actions. And I saw this really wide uh, difference between, you know, the, the, intended approach to sort of taking care of of patients and particularly vulnerable groups and, and and actually what we were doing. And it was infuriating. And I, what, I, what I experienced was really a healthcare system that got in the way, sort of inserted itself in between patients and providers, you know. And so I was really frustrated for a long time in mean, simple things. Like I remember one experience, I did this internship where I was working in the office of the charge master at a big hospital around here. And it was the job of, you know, my boss for that internship, to figure out how to make people who don't have insurance pay more money, right? Um, to take care of the folks who, uh, to cover the cost of the folks who were giving charity care to, um, it, and it felt it felt um, contradictory to me, right? Um, here we have a group of folks who are marginalized who we are now almost in effect you know sort of creating this predatory disposition towards financially and like that's our hospital that's our healthcare system you know so it was it was me going to the kennedy school to try and find a um, a language a toolbox uh for how to address you know those challenges those problems that i saw that really strengthened my voice and gave me sort of the the confidence to say, no, I not only do I belong to be here, um, I need to speak. You know, I I, I can't uh, afford to stay silent. And so that that for me has been, you know, an an ongoing journey and I and I um uh, I learn a lot I learn a lot from folks like Lash and, and from you, Risa. And you know, it becomes um it becomes something that you get better at every time, you know.
1: I think you're right. And The story you shared, just it hits home because there are difficult stories that we witness directly or indirectly, personally, or just adjacent to us. And the question is, when do you share them? How do you share them? Uh, And in what medium, whether it's written or spoken? Now, Lash, you, you share a lot with spoken word, and you put that out on social media. And I'm wondering if you can take us through your composition of I guess what I would call maybe poetry, uh, live poetry performance.
0: Yes, absolutely. Um, I think finding ways to creatively express myself, especially throughout my medical education, has been extremely healing and powerful because there are those moments when, especially when you have so much injustice happening around um, the, the brutal killings of black folks at the hands of various different systems of oppression. Um, like, what do you do with that? And I think for me, spoken word has been a huge outlet. And usually the, the process is like, there's some theme, you know, like I wrote this one piece called When the Dust Settles. And that was in the midst of last year when everyone was talking about, you know, we're anti-racist now. And they were, you know, coming out with all types of statements and, and changing visuals of their websites, et cetera. But I was like, when the dust settles, are you still gonna be here? You know, like right now it's it's hot. Everyone is saying, like, yes, you know, I'm I'm anti-racist, this is what we stand for. But what are you gonna do beyond the performances? And from there, I kind of just started digging deeper into like how I felt the strength of my ancestors during that time, and I'll just kind of have like these rhymes in my head or i'll I'll say, "You know I really wanna use this word, and then I'll try to fish in my mind for something that that rhymes with that. And just go from there. And I think sometimes it's based off of, you know, the word or, or other times it might just be a, a certain feeling that I'm trying to evoke with with what I'm trying to say. So um, usually I would say it's driven by something that happens in my life and me just wanting to to get that out of my system in a way that's constructive. Um, and, and sometimes like right now there's this um, I really love like West Coast. LA like beats. So I've been listening to a lot of like, um, like Nate Dogg and Snoop Dogg beats. And there's this one um, that I've been listening to a lot. And I keep putting, you know, words to it every once in a while. And I'm just, I'm going to see how it shakes out. But sometimes it's a certain beat that kind of inspires me. And I just go from there.
1: I first met you through Get Wavered. I first sort of started working with you, whether you knew it or not, was through Vote ER. And now I'm following you through Got Vax. So those are three advocacy initiatives. For the audience that may not be familiar, can you take us through each and uh, feel free to share whatever is important for them to know about each?
2: Sure, sure. Well, first of all, thank you for, for the support, Risa, and, and for being you know, somebody who understands the importance of you know, the, the intersection between uh, the social terms of health. And you know, clinical practice, because we can't disentangle um, so much of what affects our patients when they show up in our emergency rooms or urgent care uh, you know clinics or community health centers from the lived environment and the you know sociopolitical uh, context that folks live in. you know So you know to, to just take it from the top, you know I'm a, I'm a um, sort of problem um, uh, oriented, uh, organizer, right? Like I, 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 I joke about this with some of my intern, uh, and, and resident mentees, but, uh, I tell them early on, like, you know, keep a list of everything that pisses you off about the way that we take care of patients and everything that's broken. And it's your job to keep track of that list. And when you have uh you know the the mental and, and emotional space and the in the in the bandwidth um get to work because uh, if not you then, then who right nobody's coming nobody's coming it's you and so get wavered was one of the first problems um the work of get wavered came from one of the first problems I identified um in my intern year i was a doctor for all of like three days And I had this woman who came in requesting help getting off of uh, opioid uh, medications. And uh, long story short, I, you know, was in the room with this woman and told her, of course, we're going to help you. You know, don't worry about it. I went went to talk talk to my attending and the attending said, look, there's nothing that we're going to do for her, discharge her. And I came to find out that that's not just how our hospital operated. That's how every single hospital across the country operated. If somebody came to the ER asking for help for their addiction, really the answer is here's this piece of paper that has six facilities on it. Four of them are closed. Two of them your insurance doesn't work for. Good luck. And so we're kind of sending people out to die, to be totally honest. Data shows that as well. Um, And so, you know, get waivered was how do we figure out how to, convert our nation's emergency departments into the front door for um, opioid use disorder treatment. And the first step of that is getting physicians their DAX waiver, which allows them to prescribe buprenorphine. And so when we started, there were about 400 ER physicians that had this waiver. We've since wavered about 4,000 since the uh, start of our programs throughout the country, folks of all specialty. Uh, the second program, VODER, really comes from a similar um, identification of a problem. And the the problem was that many of our most marginalized patients are the exact same folks who are not registered to vote. Right. We have 50 million people in this country who are not registered to vote. And when you look at the demographics, they tend to be younger. They tend to be uh, more likely to be people of color, tend to be lower income. And they're sitting in our waiting room, you know, and they're not there for an emergency, they're there for I need a work note or I need a prescription refill. And so while they're there, why not offer them an opportunity to get registered to vote? And so, you know, this is the first ever sort of nationwide mobilization of hospitals and healthcare providers to do voter registration. And in the 2020 cycle, we helped just about 50,000 people with voter registration or getting their mail-in ballots throughout community health centers, pediatric clinics, ERs. I even found out that, um, community health workers were also using our, our lanyards and in uh, our badges to help folks get registered. And then lastly, VAX comes from a, a, another problem that identified, which is the idea that, you know, we had these hotspot communities here in Boston where folks were decimated by COVID. And for some reason, those low income, uh, majority minority communities, immigrant uh, communities, working class communities, for some reason, vaccine sites were not prioritized to those neighborhoods. Not sure what happened, but there were no vaccine sites in those areas. And so, you know, basically I was upset about it. I was frustrated about it. I was angry about it. And then I got to work and um, a good friend of mine, John Santiago, and I started sort of scheming and uh, thinking about how, how could we bring vaccines into these areas? And it turns out there's a tried and true playbook for how you can sort of penetrate um, uh, these sorts of communities and, it's a GOTV framework, right? Text banking, phone banking, canvassing. So we do all that, except we use physicians and healthcare providers and we bring vaccines. And, you know, we're lucky enough to work with, with Lash and the incredible work of We Got Us to, you know, really do the messaging and the persuasion work so that when we get there, you know, we can just make it easy for folks and show up with the vaccine at a local restaurant that folks go to in the church where they pray and worship. Uh, you know, at that tea stop where folks are, waiting to get on a bus. And so long story short, we try to shorten the distance between the vaccine and vulnerable communities.
1: So I wanna get to We Got Us, but first let me just make a few observation comments. Um, Behavioral economics sort of plays a role in what I see you design and how you do health design. And it's eloquent, it's beautiful, and it's simple. And I'm going to use the example of VODR. Never have I seen an initiative in my 20 years of practice. I finished residency in 2001, second full class at Hammer. And I've never seen an initiative that not only reached our patients, that to your point, this is who comes to the emergency department among everybody, but also the initiative messaged, got to, was communicated to the emergency medicine workers nurses, techs, physicians. I've never seen so many physicians talking about it. Did you get your landlord? How'd you get your landlord? Can I sign up? Show me how to sign up on shift. It was viral. It was amazing. It was powerful and it was so simple and so effective. So can you walk us through how you design your advocacy initiatives?
2: Well, the first thing is uh, that wasn't the plan to begin with. You know, it's interesting. We we started in uh, September of 2019 here at Mass General Hospital um, with kiosks, Risa, you know, these big sort of bulky kiosks that we deployed to waiting rooms where folks could register to vote um, while they're in the waiting room. And, you know, we've been you know, pushing hard, signing hospitals up, got about 20 to 25 hospitals to install these kiosks, these voter registration kiosks all the way up to the end of February. And then folks started um, you know uh, you know not responding to emails and you know folks started sort of readjusting and changing the priorities. Why? because the pandemic was just surging at that time and was just sort of coming on uh, um, and really shifting the landscape in hospitals throughout the country and of course, we see the the impact of of what happened next but but we we had this model which was touch screen surface, you know, touch screen, uh, iPads, right. An opportunity to share foam transmit foam And we're working with grass tops leaders. We're working with chiefs, CMOs, CEOs of hospitals. So we lost our audience, right? So it's like, we're in the middle of this surge in getting these kits out there, getting these kiosks out there. And then all of a sudden our strategy just crumbles, right? And so we had a decision to make. The decision was do we stop, right? Or is this pandemic actually exposing the very reason why civic engagement needs to be centered with regard to, to health and, and, and well being in this country? And so we had to readjust our strategy and we started thinking well, shoot, now we've got to go, we've got to think about this from not a grass tops campaign anymore. We've got to mobilize the grassroots. We've got to start communicating with individual physicians, med students, nurses, et cetera. And, um, you know, I give a lot of credit to our team who was able to be nimble and, um, you know, adaptive and and we made it work. And that's where the key, that's where the healthy democracy kits came from. And we knew that if we could get those right, that there would be an opportunity here to, you know, when you're in the process of movement building, you need to use these flashpoint moments and you need to um, leverage them as um opportunities to build sustained capacity long term. So these flashpoints offer a window in to start, you know, organizing. And so we knew that if we could shift our focus to organizing a group of healthcare providers who were angry, who were upset, you know, who were uh, dissatisfied with the way things were being done, uh, we'd have an opportunity to really sort of move them in in this direction. And so, you know, we got really lucky um, on multiple accounts. And uh, you know, I think have a lot of uh, just respect and uh, just overwhelming pride that healthcare providers who were already busy, who were already stressed, who were already strained, saw this as an important thing to do with their patients as well.
1: I think it spoke to so many of us. And uh, leave it to an emergency physician to pivot and make it work.
2: Right, right.
1: (laughs) Uh, I really want to uh, highlight and circle back to what you said about identify something that makes you angry. And when you have the bandwidth, get to work. So Lash, you published a new England journal of medicine piece that hit home for me because you talked about things you'd been noticing things that didn't seem right. The gap in what we're saying versus what we're doing, what we're teaching versus who are we teaching and who are we ultimately going to feel comfortable caring for. And, uh, this is the article where you discussed Lyme disease and rashes and you discussed CPR and CPR models. So for audience members that haven't read it yet, uh, talk us through that.
0: Absolutely. And, um, I'm just in awe of, of all the work that Dr. Dr. Martin has been up to. I think, um, it's just been so inspiring as someone who is very much so interested in thinking about what impacts our patients' lives outside of the clinic, outside of the healthcare setting, because everything that happens outside affects so much of what happens within. So I think it's just so great to to get to hear about your process and how you've kind of done this amazing work. Um, but as far as like finding that thing that frustrates you and in, and in, in getting to work, I think that that's been the name of the game my entire you know, medical career so far, and I think, and, and it's not hard to find these things. Not, right? not at all. It's not
1: hard. They they kind of like come to you, and you're not even looking for them. And what you spoke to is just so like, hello.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and and what's really interesting is is that I wasn't the first person to bring it up. You know, it's been brought up years and years and years before. But people were more willing to listen at this moment for some reason, or maybe it was because it was in the New England Journal of Medicine, and it wasn't in a society where it's like an echo chamber of folks having the same conversation. Um, and there's just a lot of gatekeeping in medicine, right? So it's hard for those societies who are having those conversations to really break into mainstream medicine and say, this is something we need to value. So I think that there's a whole host of reasons about you know why this particular piece was able to be so impactful. But- The the reason why that piece came up is um, one day I was in class learning in microbiology um, about the spirochete Borrelia burgdorferi that causes Lyme disease. And one of my classmates raised his hand when they were showing one of the signs that you have stage one Lyme disease is the erythema migrans bullseye rash. And he raised his hand. He said, hey, like, how would I recognize this rash on someone who has skin like mine? He's a black man. And the professor really didn't know how to give him a good answer. He was just like, well, you know, this rash doesn't show up in everyone. And in in patients with darker skin, it'll show up a little bit more purple, or you might not be able to see it. And that was the end of the conversation. And I just was not satisfied with that response, because I was thinking, well, what about the patients that I'm going to see in the future? And what about the patients who are my cousins, my mom, my aunt, you know, people in my family who if they decided to go hiking in the Northeast and, and ended up getting bit by a tick, they they wouldn't be able to have their Lyme disease recognized if they did have that rash. So then I really started to think about other ways that, that medicine was missing this hypothetical bullseye. And it made me reflect on how every part of my medical education from when we first learned about doing CPR and how when when we walked in, they were all white male bodied mannequins. And then doing further research and learning that those um, that that women are less likely to get bystander intervention for CPR, and a lot of that is related to different biases that people have. And I think that when you create a standard where you're using male bodied mannequins, all of the different learning material that you're using is on white skin what message are we sending about who are those who are worthy of being patients and what message do we send when we're not teaching our students to recognize key signs of disease in all skin types. And I think that that is why I decided to write that piece, how medical education is missing the bullseye. And I think that there are multiple different ways that I find that medical education is missing the bullseye. But I think that piece gave me the confidence to go out write, reflect, and really express things that I I, I don't feel is right. Because um, I could have stayed and sat quietly, but I decided not to. And as I said, there were other people who spoke up in the past, um, but I think that oftentimes it was a more insular conversation. And it was amazing to see that when I took it outside the walls of Harvard Medical School, how many other folks were just like, oh yeah, us too. hmm it was pitch
1: perfect. And uh, I'm going to share how it hit me. So first of all, as an attending in the emergency department, I can't tell you how often residents will say uh, patient with concern for cellulitis. Well, I can't tell whether or not it's red because they're not white. I'm like, excuse me? What do you mm. mean? Well, you can't see. I'm like, um, not true. Let's go examine the patient and let's talk about this. One example point of care ultrasound has been my niche. And if you look at all the online videos at the textbooks, it's always a muscular fit, um, white man. That's not who we're taking care of in the emergency department. And to your point, I maintain it's yet to be studied with data out yet that there's a differential treatment of women getting cardiac ultrasounds because of breasts, because of potential adipose tissue, because how do you manage this? What do you do? How do you position the patient? I have seen people avoid doing a cardiac ultrasound in a woman that's coming in with undifferentiated dyspnea, undifferentiated chest pain, because it's a woman. And um, I believe, habitus, comfort, fill in all the things that you point out in the article. And I think to your point, And when people train on someone that looks a certain way, then they have um, they're not learning to take care of everybody and everybody needs the same. Uh, standard of care and it's it's really really enraging and so when i've been in, in charge of textbooks or getting pictures i'm like we can't have pictures of all white men people are like, what are you talking about i'm like that's not who we take care of we take care of everybody and everybody's body doesn't have perfect pectoral <laughs> muscles like it's a little different exactly you know
0: 100% i hope i hope we're getting to a place where now we're starting to see how you can't separate those things cuz our very society is 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 built on those on those principles, unfortunately. So, um, so yeah, I'm really, I'm really glad that you've been fighting the fight for a minute. You
1: know, it's, uh, yeah. Um We Got Us, tie us back in to your advocacy and taking better care of everybody.
0: Yeah. Um, so We Got Us really came out of a necessity to provide a service to folks who weren't getting the information and resources that they that they needed access to to make the best health decisions for themselves. And the reason why it came up for me is in December when the vaccines were first approved, I was getting a lot of calls and text messages from family members asking me, hey, do you think that this is safe? Like, you know, what's the deal with this? I have questions. And these are family members that I had um, who were nurses, were MA, So they were like, you know, they were proximal to the, to the medical institution, but still had concerns. And I started to reflect on my privilege of being a Black woman at Harvard Medical School and understanding that I really had this unique position to be a conduit of information for my family, being a medical student, and then also being a Black woman and understanding how the medical institution could do a better job at communicating their wrongs and communicating the information that my community needed in an effective way. And there was also a study that came out around December that showed that when patients received information about the vaccine from providers who were the same race ethnicity as them, they were more willing to seek more information about the vaccine. So then there were like, you know, there was this issue that I was I was seeing that okay, there aren't enough black doctors. And that's because of things like the Flexner report and a lot of other reasons why this career is inaccessible to our community. But then the black doctors are some of the most effective trusted messengers in our community when it comes to talking about the vaccine. So I I knew that we needed to create a program we could have trusted messengers who understood the historical challenges of our communities, the ongoing challenges of our community, which the media was completely missing. They were just talking about Tuskegee and Henrietta Henry Lacks and all these historical instances of systemic racism, but they weren't talking about the everyday experience that Black folks have when they interface with the medical institution. So we really needed those trusted messengers and we needed to provide that information to our communities that they didn't have access to because of the paucity of Black providers in our communities. So We Got Us is a student-led institution collective of uh, community members, health professionals, and allies that are really dedicated to providing information to our communities about the vaccine. And we do that through empowerment sessions where we do these virtual one-hour conversations about the history of medical racism, what happened in the trials, how vaccines work, and then we have Um, frequently asked questions and and a special piece where any specific topics that the group wants to talk about, we go into detail about that, whether that be uh, vaccine and pregnancy or vaccine and youth. Um, And we do these sessions for free and folks just sign up for them on our website and they're available in in various languages. Uh, We also created a curriculum around COVID and the vaccine um, that we have available in our website of various languages. And then we got hooked up with Dr. Martin and get out the Vax and we've been canvassing in our communities um, here in Boston. We're also connected with folks in Brockton. And what we're trying to do is just knock on doors, have conversations and we're trying to address two things at once. And, And one piece is making sure that folks have access to information about the vaccine and then making sure that people have access to getting the vaccine. And I think that's what get out the Vax is really doing. But that first arm, is, is really where we got us comes in and that connecting piece is also where we come in. And we're so excited to continue this work. Now we're really focusing our efforts on 18 to 35 year olds, trying to find creative ways, whether that be paint and sips, festivals to get folks out and, and engaging with thinking about the vaccine and their health um, and doing it in creative ways.
1: There's a lot of energy and um, brain depth in the Boston area and uh Two of them are here on, on the program today. What would you say to listeners that want to make a difference, want to advocate, want to get involved outside of Boston, outside of the Northeast? How, how would you suggest they get hooked up?
2: You know, I, I, can, I can start on that one. I'd love to hear what Lash uh, would think on this, too. Uh, you know, I, I think there are two answers. The first is, um, you know, with regard to their own communities, just get started. You know, like it's never going to be perfect. You're never going to have all the people that you need. You're never going to have enough money. You might have to pay for the thing out of your own pocket the first couple times, right? Uh, but just get started because um, you know our communities can't wait, um, and you learn by doing. Secondly, with with regard to you know the vaccine um, equity issue, you know we're working with. Uh, cities across the country to begin to share and compare notes um, and give them, you know, give other community-based organizations kind of our playbook. You know, this is the kind of campaign resource management uh, platform you might want to use. Here's the peer-to-peer texting platform you might want to use. You know, here is how you might cut turf so that when you go out and do canvassing, it's easy for folks to not knock on the same doors um, uh, two or three times. And so, we're doing that work. If folks are interested, uh, you can email me at, at gotvax.org and we can, you know, build power together and figure out how to share and compare notes.
0: Lash, what would you suggest? Yeah, I mean, uh, Dr. Martin has, has said the same thing to me. You know, you you learn from doing, and I think, really and honestly, I'm I'm a, a second year student, and I'm in the middle of my clinical rotations, and we got Us wasn't supposed to be my project. It was something that I knew needed to happen. I spent all winter break waffling over it. I was like, this needs to happen. And I was talking to people. I was like, y'all, like this, this is the program. And you could call it We Got Us. I was, I was talking to people about it, trying to like, you know, help them understand what needed to go forward. But the more that I, I wrote about it and the more that I spoke about it, I was like, I need to do this. And it was a hard decision to make because, you know, this is the year I'm supposed to be learning clinical medicine. But I knew in my heart that there was just no way that I could sit back while we were in the middle of a crisis, while I felt like all of the training that I had done up to this point was preparing me for this very moment. And I think that there are some moments when we're going to have to make that decision. Like, is this something that I can take on is this something that I need to take on am I the right messenger for this and sometimes the answer is going to be 100% yes and there were no grants there were there was no there was nothing that I was applying to formally but I just started talking to people I was like I literally created a one page document and I was like here's what the budget would be Um, would you be interested in maybe supporting this and from there just started building this team And here we are. And I think that the reason why I tell this story is that if it's in your heart, you just got to do it. And as Dr. Martin was saying, it's not always going to be perfect and you're going to make a lot of mistakes along the way, but that's all going to help you build toward getting it right. And the community oftentimes doesn't care if it's perfect. They're just happy that you're out there and you see them and you're doing the work to advocate for them and be by their side. Um, So I I 100 percent agree. You just got to you just got to do it. And, and don't let the fear get to you.
2: And just to build on, on what Lash is, is saying there, you know, we, and we even talked about this, you know, early on, Lash and I were sort of in the same position where we were kind of like, man, we don't really have time to be out here doing these new projects, you know? Um, and so, you know, I, I shared, you know, back then something that that still to me motivates me Um and that is, and, and that is uh, what Paul Farmer describes as the delay, you know, and, you know, he, he describes this, this delay as the period of time between when a good person sees something wrong and decides to do something about it, right? Because what happens is sort of like the natural cycle of like, you know, you see something wrong and it's obviously wrong. And, you know, people are getting hurt by this thing. And you first waffle, you know, you just, you're like, I don't have time for this. So you start rationalizing, oh, maybe somebody else is going to take care of this. You know, maybe, maybe actually this situation isn't that broken. Maybe it's just that I'm seeing it incorrectly. So you start kind of telling yourself things to like, not get involved. And eventually you get to the point where you, you overcome those things and you're like, well, I, you know, I've got it. I've got it. I've got to do it. Um, and so the delay is, you know, as I've gotten older, the delay gets shorter and shorter now, you know, um, it used to be, and I would waffle for a long time. I can't now just, I'm not the right person. And then now it's, you know, it's shorter. And the one thing, the one last thing I'll say is, um, Oftentimes there are other people who are doing the work already and so really clarifying truly is nothing happening on this thing first before sort of jumping in and kind of, you know, uh, swooping in to, to, to get involved. Uh, so, so making sure that you know who your allies are, you, you, you know, identify who is doing this work because the collaborations and the coalitions make you, you know, multiple times stronger.
1: The Visible Voices Podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown, discussing topics of healthcare, equity, and current trends. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the show. You can listen on whatever platform you subscribe to podcasts. Our team includes Stacey Gitlin and Dr. Giuliano DePorto. If you're interested in sponsoring an episode, please contact me, risa at thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. I'm based in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and I'm on Twitter, at Risa E. Lewis. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, to be continued.